Early in the morning, this is Matthew 27, all the chief priests and all the elders came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So you have this picture where all the elders, all the leadership, religiously speaking, gather up together and they want to turn and kill Jesus, not the Romans. So the question that we have at the outset is why would you want to kill someone whose primary message is love people? Why would you want to kill someone who would simply say, just trust God? Why would you want to kill someone whose primary message is have hope, live at peace? Peace is within reach. Hope is accessible. I mean, there's a lot of hate. It's like, it's like Tim Tebow. What did he ever do to garner so much antagonism, so much hate, except live a high character life? But here we have Jesus, and this is his primary message, and they want to out him. And so why did they turn him over to Pilate and not kill him themselves? Why is it that the Roman governor is even in Jerusalem at this time? These are questions that I think are worth wrestling with because this is a really familiar passage, but here's what I'd like to say about the triumphal entry. What we like to refer to as Palm Sunday, which is today, is that there's these really fascinating layers, like an onion, that if we peel back, it takes on really significant meaning and maybe even sheds some light over our own position, our own reactions, our own expectations about our relationship with God and Jesus. So the passage unfolds this way in John chapter 12, the triumphal entry. And I'm just going to encourage you maybe uh, to jot a couple of notes down. Uh, if you've got a bulletin on your way in, you might want to just jot yourself a couple of notes. But the triumphal entry goes this way. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, the great feast was Passover, which we'll talk about in a little more. It was a yearly festival. A huge pilgrimage uh, would gather. Uh, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. And as is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him um, and that they had done these things to him. Now, if we just read a couple more verses, we, we start to get a, couple, uh, a snapshot of, of sort of the motivations. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and when he raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. In other words, those of us who have seen the faithfulness of God, those of us who've experienced something about the reality of God's presence in our life could not keep quiet. We've seen God move and now they kept spreading the word. But listen to us, many people, because they had heard the sign, this is verse uh, 18, that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after or gone with him. Kind of sour grapes. Again, it raises lots of questions. Let me just give you a little bit of the background of what, what's going on. You have the Roman Empire. They are, at this time, the global military superpower of the world. 
But if you're the global military superpower and you don't have the internet and you don't have broadcast marketing, how is it that you maintain your rule and reign? Well, primarily through two things. Number one, you're going to mint your mantra. And the mantra was Caesar is Lord. And they believed that Caesar was incarnate, God incarnate on earth. He was part human and part divine, but that there was something about the Caesar who ruled Rome and all of the Roman Empire. And the way you were going to convince people of this was you were going to mint it on all of the currency and spread the currency far and wide so that people would understand that Caesar is in fact Lord. Now you needed to come up with an enforcement strategy so that it's just not lip service. So their mass marketing was through currency. And then he would strategically place governors and other people through all parts of the land so that they would enforce Roman rule. So you have people like Herod and you have people like Pilate, a governor, that were their primary job was this, quell any uprising, maintain the status quo. This is our world, and we have the kind of God-man to prove it, but let's maintain this as the status quo. Now, what you had going on at this time, Pilate's job was to keep the peace and squash any kind of uprising. And so then you have the temple, and it's critical for understanding that the last week was the corruption of the temple that had occurred at Jesus' time. So what was happening now is that when Jesus showed up, the temple was the heart and soul of the Jewish and all the Israel nation because they believed in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple, was where the literal presence of God remained. In fact, it was built out almost to like concentric circles. And the closer you got, the more limited it was because in there was the Holy of Holies, what we now know as the Ark of the Covenant. And all of you good theologians have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark to know what happens if you get too close. It's like melting and it's not pretty. Well, this was why they revered the temple. And the temple had a leadership and the leadership historically, all the way from the Exodus, there was the 12 tribes. And of the 12 tribes, there was the priesthood tribe known as the Levites. And the high priest was always chosen from the tribe of Levi. Except somewhere along the line, Herod didn't want to keep choosing. In fact, Herod was trying to maintain order within the area so that there wouldn't be any uprising. And yet they knew the prophetic word that this king of the Jews was always speculated that it would rise up. So if you're Herod, if you're Pilate, are you excited about Passover? Are you excited about this, this suspected king of the Jews? No, you're going to nip it in the bud. You're going to do anything and everything to maintain the status quo. So what he did is historically high priests came from the Levites, but Herod was threatened by the power of the priesthood, so he ignored all the biblical law and he appointed the high priest himself. Well, you can imagine where this spiraled. If you're the governor and then you're now putting out for bid, who could be the high priest? You're gonna find a select group. Let's call it in modern parlance, the one percenters. The one percent who had the financial means to buy their way into more privilege so that you can now be co-joined in cahoots with the Roman Empire. This 
was what was at stake with all the rest of the Israelites. So they have their own kind jumping into bed with the Roman Empire. And so you have this group that's bought their way in to the leadership of the temple. And when they came into this position, they were bought with bribes, they agreed to keep the peace with Rome in exchange for the wealth that was of the temple tithes and the sale of sacrificial animals. Okay, so we have God's people gathering. They have to come with their tithes. They have to buy their sacrifice, their offerings, of which they now have a monopoly of. And so the chief priest at Jesus' time, who served for nine years as a chief priest, was a man by the name of Annas, or you might see it read in some translations, Ananias. Ananias was known as the godfather. He created essentially a mafia, a Jewish mafia. He had several sons that he would just appoint as the chief priest, but he maintained rule. He even had a, a son-in-law that he named chief priest, named Caiaphas. He was going to be the puppeteer, holding all the purse strings. And so they had the flock, they had all the rights to the flock in which you would buy your sacrifice. So they had a monopoly over where all the sacrificial lambs and doves would come from and that they would sell, corner market. They would also receive all of the tithes and begin to be able to take that for their own profit and it wouldn't be distributed evenly with some who were in need of it. The Jews knew it. It was all corrupt. They hated it and there was nothing they could do about it because they were in bed with the Roman Empire. So Jesus is awakened to this. This is what's going on in the temple courts. Good folk who want to honor God with total devotion are being gouged because of their love of God. So every year you have this festival called Passover. It would be like our Easter. It would not be unlike our Christmas. And there was this marketing advantage where the market was most hot and people would make this huge pilgrimage and every year there would be a gathering of like 200,000 people all descending on it. And it would be like all the shoppers going to the market wanting to show up not empty-handed and they would make a killing. Except there was a phrase that was said year after year and they would say the phrase next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. And it was a phrase of hope. It was a phrase of anticipation because just like God had delivered them out of Egypt, there was this belief that a new Moses would come up and they would receive a new deliverer. And so now, here comes Jesus, and he had been doing all these miracles, about three years worth of miracles about healing, and he had become sort of the popular vote. He had done enough for people in terms of providing fish and chips, uh, in terms of providing sight for the blind, in terms of challenging the establishment, and he was given more and more of a popular vote. And so when he mounted up on a donkey, they were like, this is it! It's on! Game on! God has heard the prayer of the oppressed, we get a new Messiah. We get a deliverer that's going to put this nonsense to end. So who wouldn't want to lay down their robes? Who wouldn't want to lay down their palm branches and welcome in this Savior? Because what they wanted most of all was their nation back. They wanted financial, but they wanted national identity. 
They wanted their autonomy back. Now, there was a select group called the Zealots. These were more fanatical. Terrorism wasn't above them. Um, they would go out and they were willing to take up arms and go to great lengths to even have a political military revolt. And so oftentimes what would happen during the Passover is riots would be up because there was this kind of the seed group who of instigators, they were always trying to catalyst kind of a fight. And so here's what would happen. If you're Herod, you recognize that every year there's a threat. Every year, we've got to have a show of power. We've got to remind people who's in charge. Because if I don't do my job, my head's on the line. Heads will roll. Caesar's Lord. And this idea that Jesus is Lord, well, that was a heresy. You can't start talking like that. That there's a king of the Jews. There's one king, and he lives in Rome. That's all we're allowed to talk about here. And so here's what would happen every Passover. From the West, you would have coming down with a great demonstration of force. It would be Pilate would mount up and he would bring in, it would be the equivalent of Sherman tanks. It would be the equivalent of chariots and horses that would come in. They would line up in huge formation as this demonstration of might just flexing their muscles going, oh no, 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 no. Rome is in charge. Resistance is futile. Don't even think about it. Whoever's going to start something is going to be squashed. And these soldiers were willing to shed blood to maintain the order. So from the West, you would have every year this huge processional with might, with power, rolling up into Jerusalem where 200,000 people were already gathered to celebrate in hope and anticipation that this might be their deliverance. And here comes Rome rolling up on them going, uh-uh, it's going to stay the same. Don't even try it. And so Jesus now rolls up on the east side. But here's what Jesus does. He does a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 of this prophecy where it says that he'll mount up on a donkey. And he chooses a donkey over a horse because if he would have mounted up on a horse, that would have looked military. That would have looked like a warrior king. Jesus chooses to be a gentle king, a servant king. He chooses to ride up on a donkey because it looks rather unimpressive. It's a humble posture. It's not a warrior posture. On the west, coming in from Caesarea Philippi, about an 18-mile journey into Jerusalem, here comes this show of strength and might. You can just picture like these gladiator soldiers coming in. You can see sort of the regalia, the big eagles that are demonstrating the Roman Empire. You can see the spears, the jouts, the swords, the shields, all in formation. Jesus comes from the east side by the Mount of Olives, and he's on a donkey, one he doesn't even own. In fact, the only clothes that he owns are on his back. He has no spare change. He has no spare wardrobe. He comes as basically a peasant riding in and being greeted by the people. So you can imagine the contrast, and we understand from art that good art always paints in contrast. If you want to paint sky, you have to create 
dark mountains or a cityscape. There's something that's going to contrast so that you understand what the focus is. Jesus, like this wonderful artist, has this brilliant contrast to say, this is not my kingdom. I'm mounted on a donkey. They're all about army and horses and, and the equivalent of tanks. And they come, come rolling up in here. Now, uh, Passover was always, again, a remembrance. It was a retelling of the stories like we retell the stories. I got to tell you, one of the hardest things as a preacher, every time, and our big, you know, our two Super Bowls are Christmas uh, and Easter, and it's really hard to be creative about planning these messages because everyone knows the punchline and everyone's heard the story before. And so you're like, how do I creatively actually tell you something you don't already know, except maybe the best thing is we could re be reminded that the resurrection is a promise for all of us. And the birth of Christ isn't just a 2,000-year-old birthday party, but it's a reminder that he's coming again. So we're reminded of those things. And every year we gather and we call these things sacred holidays because why? We need to retell the story for our own heart, for our own minds, and for upcoming generations. The Jews were no different. They needed to get together every year to testify of the faithfulness of God, that even though we're oppressed today, even though we're being taxed out of our own land, even though I'm working the land that I used to own and now I'm a day laborer on my own property, I will not forget the faithfulness of God. I can't forget. He has always been faithful to us, even though it's hard. And so they mount up. And people are like, yes, this guy that we've been watching, this guy that's been standing up to this 1% of Jewish establishment, this guy, he's it. And so there was this great popularity that Jesus had been growing. Now, it's often said that the same people who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, were the same people one week later that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, to which I would say, I don't believe that's actually true. I think that the people were genuinely enamored with Jesus as a provider and as a source of hope, and they recognized him as Messiah. But here's the thing. You had seeds of people who started stirring the pot. You had people in the 1% that didn't want to lose the corner market on the religious establishment. The ones who were in business and in bed with the Romans had everything to lose. And it was an economic empire that if they were to give up, if they were seeding, they would lose their economic position. They would become like everyone else. This is what I think has been at the heart of a lot of the current establishment is how do we go up against Wall Street? How do we... And it's not that we can't get wealthy. It's not that you can't build wealth. It's that there are people who are still in need while other people are getting rich at the expense of those people. And God's economy is always understanding the world that God actually intended. And so when we can have our hearts resensitized, it's how do we steward our skills our knowledge, our abilities? How do we steward our resources in a way for mutual benefit? But these people were so conservative that they were willing to crucify Jesus so that they could maintain their elite wealth and keep gouging at the altar. Jesus 
comes as a revolutionary, but he's not wanting to take up arms. So when they say, uh, and so uh, in this triumphal entry, you have this east versus west showdown. You have this walking in with, on one side, there's great pomp and circumstance. And on the other side, you have peasants and farmers, um, people living off the land. Hosanna, though, was a pretty nationalistic statement. Um, we, we have similar statements that we might use to talk about what makes America great again or um, God bless America. But this was an ultra-nationalistic statement that the Jews were proclaiming, which is simply, save us. Save us like you did from the Egyptians. But then they started waving these palm branches. And I always think it's funny because I grew up in churches that would always have this, it was like palm branches um, are not olive branches. You've heard the phrase, extend an olive branch. It's sort of a peace offering. Um, olive branches aren't the same uh, as palm branches. Palm branches were pre-Roman conquering, were minted on Israelite coins. It was a very nationalistic, it was like we would have an eagle or stars and stripes. So when they start waving palm branches, they're not just celebrating a man. They're not, not just speaking peace. There's a laying down of palm branches because they are wanting to be pro-Israel. They are wanting to reestablish their national identity. They're wanting to see their kingdom reestablished. So then we get to this passage in Luke chapter 19 and we read these words in verse 41 and he says, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it and he said, if even you, only you, known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come, uh, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your coming. So Jesus wept when he saw the display of the government power. And he's like, my kingdom is totally different and totally at odds with this kingdom. Pilate from the West, garbed in strength and power, and Jesus starts weeping. He starts also weeping, I believe, over the zealots' palm branches because he understood what would come. And in AD 70, they actually went to blows. He was speaking prophetically. And they went to blows and took up arms, and Jerusalem and the temple were utterly destroyed. Lives were lost because they tried they tried to beat the global military superpower of their day, and he knew it was coming. But he wept over the temple leadership. He wept over the spiritual leadership and what had become of these people. Just getting fat off of the tithes, sacrifices, devotion, and worship of God's people. So why was he killed by his own people? I think in the upper city, these chief priests living in wealth who were in partnership with Pilate said, and, and that's why they said in, in, in verse 19, so the, the, the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They had to, they had to get involved. And I think they seated this crowd, and, and I think they led to Jesus' crucifixion. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this phrase, 
from that time on. And what we see coming out of this passage is a shift. From that time on was confronting something right in front of us with what had preceded it. Matthew uses the phrase three times, but it represented a decision. And so as we stumble into Palm Sunday, I think we're confronted with two ways. There is the way of Jesus, and there is the way of Pilate. See, there's always two ways in which we can parent. There's always two ways in which we can deal with an immigration crisis. There's two ways in which we can train our employees. There's two ways in which we can parent. There's two ways in which we can be married. There's two ways in which we can do good or bad business. There's always two ways. There's the way of Pilate. There's the way of the world. There's the way that shows might makes right, or there's the way of Jesus that comes in and says, my kingdom is totally different and at odds with this kingdom, and we can experience new life without it coming to blows. Jesus walks into this new humanity, and he says, there's always, and when there's two ways, there's one question. And I think this is the question that we're left with on this Palm Sunday. What brings salvation? What brings deliverance? What brings hope? In other words, we have to ask the question, what is it, when things happen in this world, what is it that we as the people of God can be a part of restoring? What is it, even though this world is normal, what is the world that God intended? If we can answer that question, I think we can walk the path of Christ. Because what we understand about this world is not actually the world that God created. He created something without shame, fear, and regret. He created something where everyone could prosper, everyone could live in harmony. What was the world that God actually intended? There's always two ways. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we confront Um, competitive business, that as we confront difficult parenting scenarios, pray that as we enter into, you know, relationship, uh, that we would understand the way you chose. I don't believe that just means take it on the chin, but I pray that we could be a part of your salvation, your restoration, your healing. I pray that you would speak to us about how to walk in alignment with you. I believe there's two ways in which we can organize our finances. There's two ways in which we can steward our time. There's two ways in which we can offer our gifts and abilities. I pray that you would allow us by your grace to be a part of your kingdom purposes in in doing your bidding. And somewhere in the midst of that, we can experience new life. So we respond in just praise and worship tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.